Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super agile, story, story from the space man. Come well lit. <laughs> Oh, look at that. Look at that handsome devil right yeah. there. <laughs> I'm repping the start. I, exactly. I intentionally oh. wore the startup grind uh, t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. Let's get some photos. Okay. Get artistic. And some of the man himself. Whatever you want. Any angles. You can talk in the mic like we're... Yeah. Yeah, so we'll basically just we'll just chat it up and then kind of freestyle, see where it goes, have fun, cool, educate, entertain a little bit along the way. Nice, you know, call out the ghosts, call out the ghost. Yeah, so we Hungry will ghost festival. We will get started. Today is, uh, well, today is Friday, TGI Friday. Yes, and Curtis Berg was on are his we way over here. Now? We are actually recording. Oh wow, your voice is i'm going it's there in perpetuity now <laughs> perpetuity <laughs> um so hello ladies and gentlemen welcome back to another episode of firelight chats we are sitting here in daan taipei with the intern taking amazing photographs and we are here with a very special guest curtis berg who is or has been the director of co-director director of startup grind singapore yeah, um, for a for while about i know it's dragged Four on a years, bit five years with covid I can't do the math in my head right now yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> but it's been about two and a half years of we just did our first in-person event in singapore last month okay um and i got covid when i was in singapore and 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 couldn't make it sadly so uh arch the other director in singapore he held down the fort and did a great job so oh wow so yeah. you went there for that event and then yeah. got covid and well i was yeah i was back in town and then it was like we got to do an event in-person event because singapore is pretty much in a lot of ways back to normal yeah um you know, everyone was just really itching to get back to doing in-person events. And, and then I came down with COVID and, you know, it was, it was just like, oh, that's, I'll have to wait till September or October when I'm back again. Wow. <laughs> so, were you guys able to do like a hybrid event where you were calling in from your quarantine? No, we were, we were thinking if we could put the iPad on like a Roomba or something and yeah. have it just move around. But, uh, sadly, technologically couldn't get there, but, uh, we need a startup for that. Yeah, I think there is one. I, I, think, <laughs> I think Facebook tried to do something where I've seen them in TV shows where it's like the iPad on a stick and a robot moves around. So it's like you're networking virtually wow. at the same height that you're normally at. Okay. So, okay. I don't know. Yeah, maybe we'll see. <laughs> wow. So Curtis is here uh, in Taiwan, even though he is the director of Startup Grind, the Singapore chapter. Um, yep. But we will get into uh, a bit of the story about, you know, why Taiwan, why he's here now, yeah. uh, as well as kind of delve into Singapore life and working for the Startup Grind as well, the kind of startup ecosystem and all of those kind of things. And then it's kind of a good follow up on episode nine, where we had Jerry Koo, our first mm. third culture kid. Um, but he's actually Taiwanese, but kind of lived in the States, Shanghai and, and also Singapore. Singapore was one of his stops. So 
Um, Curtis is an American, but has some experience in Singapore. Yeah, I guess I qualify as a third culture kid. Yeah. So wasn't born in America. Yeah, so. right. Okay, how about we jump into that directly? So what about that the story? Short life story, yeah. So I was born in Germany back in uh, 83. So Frankfurt was where I was born. My dad was stationed in the military. So, you know, East and West Germany at that time. So he did ROTC in college and uh, spent a couple of years in the military. So I was born there. And then uh, I think it was about three or four months he left the service and then took a private sector job and parents moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where I grew up for 16 years. So that's all that I knew. Hmm. And then my dad's company in 1999 uh, was like, hey, we want to move you to Singapore. And I'm a plain nerd. So I had just read about Singapore Airlines. <laughs> and I think the first question or the first words out of my mouth were like, do we get to fly that? Because that looks, that looks awesome. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't like, halfway around the world or where it was, it was just, you know, I was like, do we get to fly that plane? And so at the end of 1999, right before Y2K hit, we, you know, my parents were like, we got to get to Singapore before Y2K hits. Uh, yeah. Cause you know, you remember you thought the world, the like, plane was going to like, the plane was going to fall out of the sky. Yep. The power grid was going to shut down the radar like, and you know, everything, the world would just like go down for like a few hours exactly. and everyone was thinking that was going to happen. So you know, my parents were just like, I think we should get there before Y2K. You know, we, so we landed like three or four days, I think, before New Year's. And I remember being, uh, for those familiar with Singapore, up in Woodlands near the American School, which, you know, it's probably the equivalent of Tianmu here in, yeah, in uh, Taipei. And yeah, Tianmu. You know, and out of the city center. And we were up there at a, a New Year's party, basically. And, uh, you know, I remember the countdown going on and just like looking around at the HDBs thinking... The light's just going to go off and nothing happened. <laughs> oh, man. It was so anticlimactic, if you remember. So the world didn't collapse. Yeah. So we moved. Uh, we moved there. I remember we got our passports before we moved there. I had never really been overseas uh, besides like Canada and the Bahamas mm. uh, on like a cruise. And, you know, when we transited through Tokyo, you know, that was just like, it just kind of hits you. You're like, wow. you see the Japanese writing on the wall, mm -hmm. the announcements in Japanese. You know, it was, you know, it's, it's a, a big culture shock. Yeah. And then yeah. we landed in Singapore at about two o'clock in the morning, I think. And, you know, they had a one of those maxi cab vans. Mm. All our luggage got thrown in that. And then there was a car. And then my parents were like, hey, Curtis, could you ride with the luggage? And, you know, I've never been to Asia. This is, you know, it's sweltering hot. So that was the other thing. Driving yeah. on the left side of the road. Mm, true. So that was also like, whoa, what's going on? Discombobulated. Very much so. And then, you know, as a 16-year-old, and, you know, we're, we're just barreling down the Pan Island Expressway in Singapore towards where we lived. And, you know, the driver was, like, talking to me. This this really nice taxi uncle. And he was, I mean, but his, you know, Singlish, the Singaporean English, accent. Uh, I never heard that. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, it was such a culture shock to me. Yeah. And the next day we wake up and, you know, I, I think we got there and I had a Walkman and I, like, turned it on. And I heard a Britney Spears song on like the radio and I'm like, I felt comforted by it for I some know, Brittany, reason. Brittany, you're here. Yeah, with yeah. Me. It was this like, 
Ah, oh, there's a, I recognize the song. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, and and it's I, I guess that's. I mean, I was 16 at the time, but like, you know, it's kind of looking back. I'm like, of course, they had like English language radio stations and stuff. You know, so my ignorance as a, a 16 year old was really at play there. I think. Right. And, and and the next day we woke up and we walked into the area of Singapore where we lived to go to the grocery store, and it was daylight now, and you could see it, and uh, you know, it was just super impressive because it's so tropical and everything there. Mm. And I think I adjusted very quickly hmm. to Singapore and Singapore life. You know, got to the American school, made friends pretty easily. Hmm. And then, you know, the fact that, you know, Singapore is small and compact, I could go, we were pretty close to Orchard Road, if, if anyone's mm. familiar with that. Mm -hmm. And friends were like, hey, look, we're going to go watch a movie. And my parents didn't need to drive me anywhere. Or I didn't need to drive somewhere. You could just Singapore. hop in a taxi yeah. or on a bus and the buses and the public transport system there is just pristine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we adapted, I think, fairly quickly. Hmm. Um, you know, so that was the middle of my junior year of high school. Okay. Uh, most Americans go back to the U.S. for the summertime. And that's when we did like college visits hmm. uh, and then got back to Singapore and you know, senior year. And then by that time, I, I really felt like a kind of a quote unquote season pro. Like I, mm. I had adapted and adjusted pretty quickly. Uh, and then I graduated in 2001. I went to school at Northeastern University in Boston, go Huskies. Mm. And I was scheduled to start right. I think our first day of classes was September 14th, mm. 2001. And 2000, so, oh, yeah, and we were, we were going to get on a plane oh. on September 12th from Singapore. Oh, Which no obviously way. did not happen. Yeah. So I went through all of that as a, uh, how old was I then? 18. Wow. I went all, through all of that as an 18 year old. Um, For any who are too young, we are referring to September 11th, 2001. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's already 21 years ago, basically. I met a young gentleman who had no idea, wasn't even born yet. I'm like, oh no, I'm getting old. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, you know, there's significant moments in history that happen in your life and you remember it vividly. And then you meet somebody that's like 20 or something and, and they're like the like, moon landing. What? What are yeah. you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and you're and, and you have to explain the event to them. That's when you realize, oh, gosh, I'm really old. Yeah. Um, you know, as an 18 year old, just going through all of that pretty tough and then going to school in Boston and I don't know if you remember that day two of the planes came out of Boston there was yeah, right. raids happening in Copley Square that was all over the news that was some people thought it was related we didn't know what was going on and, and Northeastern's right up the street and it was kind of surreal flights into the U.S. were kind of a mess at that point yep. um, we flew I think we flew to Zurich Manchester England Chicago and then to Boston and the, you know, the flight from Chicago to Boston, I will never forget it. It was probably a 730 flight, you know, on a weekday. It should be really crowded. And it was like seven people. You could just feel the mood. It was American Airlines flight. I still remember it. The flight attendants were, you know, it was just super tough. somber, very yeah. somber. Yeah. You know, so starting classes basically a week after 9-11, roughly. And, you know, and your family being on the other side of the world, too. Yeah. Because, you know, my brother, my mom and my dad were in Singapore. But, you know, I'm back in the U.S. in a bigger city than Cincinnati, more 
cosmopolitan mm. city and I love Boston. So, mm. um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. And then after, you know, I did an internship in Singapore, uh, you know, Northeastern has a co-op program. That's what they're really known for. So you mm. get out there in the workforce and go out there and experience the world. And I did that in the newsroom at CNBC Asia, uh, the business news channel and absolutely loved it. And then came back, graduated and then, you know, realized Asia was where all the growth was. Mm. Um, you know, Singapore uh, was really where, you know, things felt like home in a lot of ways. And I just wanted to get back out. So I uh, came back out to Asia in August of 2006, spent some time in China doing microfinance work. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, in uh, Hefei province uh, in, or Hefei in Anhui province. Anhui, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, came back to Singapore. An opportunity popped up with a, was essentially a startup there in 2007 hmm. with an ex-colleague. And that's what got me back. So from 2007 to about 2020, I was based in Singapore. And professionally, that's where my career started. So complete third culture kid in a lot of ways you know yeah, life over takes the place. funny turns you know you grow up in cincinnati and and cincinnati is a great city to grow up in but it's spread out everyone has a car in high very school it's very midwestern mm-hmm. people are friendly but mm-hmm. it's like you need to go anywhere you got to drive 20 30 minutes and that was what i thought my life was gonna be and that's that was totally cool with me and then it was it's like curveball and you're out in asia and and here i am now still in asia right exactly so i mean that's a real kind of marker in my life that really changed the trajectory of it so speaking of age how long have you been here in asia now how many years has it been i think if i add it all up three tours of duty in yeah. singapore and then the almost two years in Taiwan, I think it's about 17 years total. 17 years. It's about 17, 16, 17 years. Wow. Is my guess. In Asia. So, yeah. Because you go back, you travel back at summertime for like a month or two. So I think it's about 16 or 17 years. Okay. That's quite a bit yeah. of time. Yeah. So where were you when 9-11 happened? So, you know, because you, you were trying to fly out the day before. So. I, I, I remember it vividly. You know, there's points in your life where a significant event happens and you just will always remember where you were when you heard the news. 100%. And that day, I still remember it. We were at the American Club having dinner with one of my parents' collegehood friends who was a doctor in town for a conference and some surgeries. I still remember we were at the American Club at the Eagle's Nest restaurant. I even remember where we sat. Um, My short-term memory can be really bad. Like I'm still asking people five minutes later, like what company do you work for again? But but like long-term memory is there. We had dinner, it was September 11th. You know, we're 12 hours ahead of the East Coast. I came back to do some homework. So we had like a room in our house in Singapore where the computer was. My parents had just gotten cable television installed. Uh, I mean, we were a little behind the curve on some things, but like we, I think we just had cable TV put in and I just flicked the TV on you know you see the twin towers and the first plane had just hit and i like ran around the house telling everybody my dad he came down to watch my brother who was how old was he he would have been 14 at the time um he was doing homework in his room and then my mom was packing and it was just like i was like mom this is going on and she's like you are going to college tomorrow like you gotta pack (laughs) and like make sure you have your stuff pack so we can go right and then dad came down and i was i still remember i called my friend i stepped out into the living room i called my friend and we were talking about it 
And, you know, I heard my dad like scream because he had watched the second plane hit the second tower live in real time, in real time, basically. And that's when it dawned on us that I think everyone with that second. Plane, yeah. Well, yeah. like I, I still remember going up and, and being like, Mom, another plane just hit the tower. And it was like, we'll still pack for co-. like it hadn't hit her. It hit her okay. the next morning because I remember coming out and she was in tears and like friends had come over to like consoler because it, it the, the gravity i think had just impacted her mm. um so yeah it was a really kind of surreal sort of experience uh because you know we were supposed to leave that day and then with u.s airspace closures and shutdowns it just didn't happen i didn't really care about me at that point i was just in shock of the magnitude of what i had just witnessed mm-hmm. and the loss of life uh, that had happened. I do remember watching the towers collapse live in real time, just thinking what I'm witnessing, what is going on and just the tragedy of it. And, you know, with everything going on, you're 18, you're going to college, your family's over here, you're 8,000, 9,000 miles away with everything. And the world has literally just changed overnight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was a crazy time. Yeah. Wow. So I eventually, went to New York on a business trip in, what was that? That was about 20, I think it was 2019, 2018, 2019. Mm. And I stayed down near ground zero and I actually had a room. There's a courtyard Marriott. I'm not trying to plug courtyard, but (laughs) there's a courtyard Marriott and they gave me a room with like a beautiful, like floor to ceiling corner glass windows that looks right down on the trade center memorial. Mm, And you can see in at night and it's just peaceful and tranquil. And I remember sitting there for like 30 minutes, you know, just doing nothing and just reflecting because it was like, you know, you remember these sorts of things. Exactly. So, and I went to that memorial. I went through it. It's incredible moving and I think they did a beautiful job memorializing the people that passed away that day in that attack and you know it's just so somber and tranquil and just really well done I think and I think it does justice to what happened that mm-hmm. day exactly yeah very yeah. pivotal moment very for Americans yeah at that time you were able to go through time and then go through that college experience as well yep. of four years yeah And then this co-op experience, uh, it sounds like that was quite a transformational kind of. Yeah, Northeastern, you you know, it is a very globalized school right now. You know, I'm still very much involved with the young global leaders of Northeastern. And we do, uh, we're going to have a conference in Oakland next month, uh, which I'll be at. Uh, We've done conferences all over the world. And what's happened in the last 20 some odd years is Northeastern, which was, you know, my uncle went to Northeastern actually. Mm. Um, And back then it was a commuter school in Boston. Mm -hmm. And they essentially invented the co-op program. I have some friends at the University of Cincinnati that I argue with over this because they do co-op as well. But I think it was really us that that (laughs) kind of minted the idea. And the objective was to get people to do real world experience. So you spend about six months back then. It was six months in the classroom and six months working, doing an internship or something. Uh, And the school had had set up partnerships with companies. So they had positions already in companies Mm. in and around Boston and, and parts elsewhere in the U.S., not really international so much at that time, but you could go out there and set up your own, which is what I did when I did CNBC. So Mm. uh, back then you went to Northeastern for five years, not four. Okay. But you did the same amount of studying as a four-year university. Uh, And then you did about three, I think it was three was the number of of co-ops. The school though has evolved now to 
not just co-ops, but global experiences because they have really become a really global institution. And, and the, the president of the university who, you know, he wasn't the president at the time when I was there, but, you know, he came in to office and has really just done an amazing job. And we've, you know, the U.S. News and World Report rankings are what people look at when they're looking at colleges. Mm-hmm. And we have gone, I think we were like 125 roughly when I went there and mm. we're like in the top 50 now. Oh, wow. So, okay. you know, we, we, we made a massive jump and there's been a lot of media on how Northeastern has done it. The school has grown leaps and bounds, not just in the rankings, but, you know, the campus has completely changed. Uh, they've got great faculty, great programs. So the learning has, has really changed and the number of applications have gone up now. Like, I don't think I'd get in now if mm, I applied, mm-hmm. you know, as the, <laughs> the high school student that I was. Mm. Um, so the number of applications, I think there was one time I think we were in and maybe we still are. So you know, I'm just trying to remember here. Mm-hmm. So nobody quote me on this, but yep. I think it was like we were top five universities in the U.S. in terms of applications, almost 50,000 and like two or 3,000 spots. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it is really competitive to get it. I mean, people want to go there because the education is really well-rounded. Right. And it sounds like very practical as well. Very, very practical. Right. A lot of, you know, the draw of the co-op program and what makes that program so valuable is you get to go out there and see if this is what you want to do. Like I almost switched to journalism after doing CNBC in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. That's really, I think, valuable for students to be able to study something, but then go apply it. Exactly. And, and people can find where their fit is and what exactly. they're really meant to do. Uh, I think a lot easier that way. And that that's really kind of the draw of Northeastern. Plus the relationship, a lot of kids would graduate and have their jobs, full-time jobs lined up with their co-op employers. Mm, right. So you had kind of somewhere to go immediately after graduation, mm. uh, which is incredibly valuable. So what was your initial interest in CNBC? Because you said you set that up yourself. I have been a news junkie my whole life. I mm. would come back from school and, you know, the local five o'clock news at five, five thirty, six. Exactly. And then six thirty, it's national news. So mm-hmm. you had my generation, well, not really my generation, <laughs> but me as a kid. Uh, would watch Tom Brokaw on NBC Nightly News or Dan Rather mm-hmm. or Peter Jennings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just, that's really how I learned about the world. So I was, you know, learning like back in the late 90s, uh, the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia and mm-hmm. Clinton's policy towards Kosovo. And I was informed, like I mm. did that. So I really knew about the world when I came to Singapore. And I was very involved. I did model United Nations in high school. And I have an interesting story about that, which we can talk about, which involves Taiwan as well. So that really was kind of the draw to the newsroom for me. Initially, I had approached CNBC because I wanted to do marketing and sales because that's what I was studying in university. I was a marketing major. Okay. And so I was going for the commercial side of the media business. uh, I see. And they were like, we don't have anything on the on the commercial side but the newsroom's got internships would you like to work there and it was like it's a business okay. news channel it's yeah that makes sense that, mm. that's related that work <laughs> yeah and the co-op advisor signs off on it and and off i go it was really great because you're covering markets you have ceos come in for interviews sometimes american ceos that are in town you know want to get on and and do an interview uh so i worked on uh, Squawk Box, uh, which is kind of their flagship program in Asia. Uh, mm-hmm. So we broadcast out of Singapore. 
Uh, I also worked on managing Asia, which uh, is still going strong after I think it's more than 20 years right now, which is 30 minute sort of in-depth interviews with mm. business leaders. You know, so it was really a great experience. Mm. Um, and I was back in Singapore and, and there's still some people that work there from when I was there. And, you know, it was nice catching up with them. How do you think your life would be different if you actually followed that path and became a journalist? That's a good question. Um I probably would have been all over the world and, you know, mm. probably would have covered some of the wars that yeah, we did. War correspondent. War correspondent. Because <laughs> honestly, I not that I, I have a knack for danger, but mm. I, I'm usually like, yeah, I'll, I'll be adventurous. Let's you, go. Some, you like risk. You're in the startup little, business. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit in, in that regard. Yes. But mm. I also like going off the beaten path to certain mm. places. Mm -hmm. You know, like I've been to Brunei and. Like mm. most Americans can't find Brunei. I have to. Oh, you have to. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, I see something like that. I was like, I want to go there. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, I want to go someplace somebody hasn't been or, or do something interesting. Mm. So yeah, my path probably would have been different. Probably would have started with like, you know, usually out of uh university, you start at a local news station in the U S and then kind of work your way up. So mm. Yeah, But I guess in this kind of recent post as a director of Startup Grind, yeah. uh, a lot of that kind of comes into play as well, right? You have a lot of experience kind of interviewing these business leaders. Right, and yeah. And actually in 2007, when I moved back to Singapore, one of my former colleagues from CNBC was doing a startup. Uh, and it's a great story because this is 2007. So the iPhone and the smartphone is not out. Okay. And we were doing kind of... Singapore equities market coverage or stock market news coverage and 3G web enabled phones were just coming out. Everyone was trying to figure out like I remember going to like Web Wednesday and Mobile Monday events and everyone's <laughs> like, what's the killer app? How do we like leverage this technology? And, you know, it's still the clamshell phone and you're scrolling the around Motorola, Motorola, <laughs> yeah, the, know, razor. the razor. Yeah, I had a razor. The <laughs> razor was too. cool back that then. Was so cool. Yeah, so cool. So it's a great example. Uh, and so I actually did presentation to camera, did a lot of work where it was journalism mm. in a lot of ways. So in some ways, I kind of did follow that journalistic path. Mm. Um, but it's a great example of a startup. And, you know, he, uh, the founder was convinced that people were going to consume content on mobile. He was like, this is the future. I mean, we're still talking Nokia N95 clamshell phones, Motorola razors. Yeah. Which didn't have a smart interface at all. Gosh, no. Yeah. I mean, I remember, wow. You know, people were putting magazines on phones, doing things. And, and you look back at it now at the time it, it was cool, but now you're like, this is so clunky. This makes mm -hmm. no sense. And so it's a great story and example of, you know, somebody that was totally on the money that was probably too early yeah, exactly. in, in the market, but a great evangelist that, you know, was uh, working to convince brands and companies and people that, you know, mobile content, you have to start thinking about mobile. So uh, in that way, you know, I, I like coming back to that story because I think it's just and back then, the startup ecosystem in Singapore was so different than what it is today. Mm. Um, so I've really seen it grow. It's very nascent at that time. Yeah, back then, VC firms really didn't exist or have a presence there. Family offices and kind of uh, wealthy individuals and families were not looking at venture funding mm -hmm. or 
angel investing. They're still very much traditional asset class focused. Yep. I mean, just to see where it's gone has been very similar to where kind of Taiwan is now. You know, it's interesting because I came here and you know, I think Taiwan has a lot of the elements needed to have a really vibrant startup ecosystem in its own way. And I see so many parallels to where Singapore was about 10 years ago, right. 12 years ago. And it's like, I've seen this before. Exactly. I, I know what the, trajectory. the potential, yeah. potential is, the trajectory is compared to what I saw in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Taiwan is literally at that stage right now where they're considering kind of offering these incentives for family office to come here yeah it's also a very nascent market here yeah um so you know it's been really interesting kind of in the last two years since i've been here learning kind of about the startup ecosystem connecting with startups helping startups and just kind of learning about the landscape and then seeing some of the the positive changes that are happening and where you know things are headed Mm. uh and what that potential is there it's been very very interesting then you know just that perspective from singapore to come here Mm -hmm. you know it's like it's interesting vantage point yeah very very interesting right so it's interesting you you started college right after 2001, the September 11th, right? And then you mentioned about this kind of experience in Singapore in 2007, mm-hmm. but that's also pre the big crash, right? Yeah, the, that's the financial. that's uh, the global financial crisis and stuff. And, and so I went back into doing media and then I was on the commercial side of, of media for a long time in the market research and only really went into doing the startup stuff in 20... 2016 or 2017. Okay. Um, and that's really when I, I kind of jumped out of doing the commercial side of media. So I was in mm. media sales, content solutions, market research, kind of, you know, the advertising and media industry is, it's a pretty tough industry to be in. Like people get burnt out pretty easily. Yeah. So, and then I, I jumped over to doing startups and then, you know, how I got involved with startup grind was a previous director said, Hey, you're really good at interviewing. You should come Hmm. run the fireside chat so the, oh wow i think the first fireside chat i did was mikhail Svein from zendesk okay. uh which is you know a very uh, important solution yeah yeah zendesk <laughs> a, a publicly listed company um and he's written a book i believe the title is startup land mm-hmm. um just trying to remember it off the top of my head but and he was you know a really great interview and then we had uh somebody in singapore from a company that zendesk had acquired Hmm. Um, so, you know, a very kind of, I would say for a founder in Singapore, I think I don't remember exactly when they got their start, but it was before kind of the wave of the startups that you see now before the carousels and the grabs, hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. those guys started and then he was acquired. So, you know, it's, uh, kind of an earlier founder in Singapore story. So it was great having both of them there and it was, you know, that was that's how I started one. with Startup Ryan, yeah. From these experiences kind of interviewing people and having these fireside chats, what are some of your your biggest memories um, in terms of kind of stories, lessons learned, um, either positive or negative? Yeah, I think a key takeaway for startups, um, you know, fundraising is always something that comes up. And typically with Startup Grind, what we try to do for the people that we host in Singapore is have have them have gone through that milestone of raising a seed round, a significant seed round, like more than a million dollars or Mm. having done an A or a B round. We have had just a few that were able to grow their business completely bootstrapping it and scale it. Wow. Which is a compelling story in and of itself. Definitely. Um, So we've we've had a couple of those stories before. 
But we, we typically try to get the founders to share that fundraising story. Mm. And I can just tell you, there is no, it just is all over the board in terms of how it happens. Mm. There is no. There's no SOP. There really <laughs> isn't like a dummy's guide for fundraising, or maybe there is now, but you know, there <laughs> isn't really a, you have to do it this way. Mm. It really is different strokes for different folks. Yeah. The key denominator is, you know, people need to go earlier than they think and that fundraising takes longer than you think. Mm. And then also know thy numbers. You got to know your numbers. Right. So have your elevator pitch down, know your numbers. Don't hype your deck too much because investors can see through that and just give a real honest assessment. But how people fundraise, how they go about it how they get to that objective of whatever amount they want to close in their round really zigs and zags and varies. I mean, it is all over the place. I've heard stories of people that just like walk in and have a coffee with somebody and then they've got, you know, a a soft commitment or or, uh, someone saying like, I'll send you the term sheet walking out of that lunch. I know people that have thought that they would raise in six months that are still trying to raise after 10 months mm-hmm. with no money. I've had friends that have uh, and other contacts where I've heard stories of people knocking on their door mm-hmm. wanting to get in mm-hmm. on what they're doing, mm-hmm. which is a really enviable place to be in. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. But a lot of founders, I think also one of the key takeaways is, you know, people tend to look at fundraising and think it's just part of the startup process mm. and that's how you grow and scale. But they really need to think about, and I think too many founders kind of lose focus of this, is the moment you take external money, outside money, you're on the clock. That is not a charity donation. That is not something where we're giving you this money so that you can continue to to do your business and have it as a project. (laughs) (laughs) for i think it's called flow exactly from anderson anderson horowitz Horowitz, and and you're just like there you know it we can get to that but (laughs) i think a lot of founders don't realize that that money goes in that's an investment there is a return on capital expected Mm -hmm. and now your kind of job and duty is to grow and scale the business yeah and create shareholder value need results. You need to have results. The clock is ticking. So you need to get a game plan together that grows and scales the business. And I think too many founders just, if you're in a spot where your, your business is self-sustaining or your cash flow positive and you raise that money's for growth. Right. And I think a lot of founders tend to not take the next steps or the risk. Mm. And they kind of are very conservative with that money uh, versus founders that raise and burn to survive, to Mm. add runway. You know, I've seen way too many startups that are like, you know, this buys us five months more of runway. And it's just like, okay, then what? Exactly. You know, where's the... What's plan. the vision? What's the plan? Yeah. And quite honestly, and I was talking about this with some other VCs, there's a lot of startups that will raise a decent amount, but they don't scale at the velocity or the trajectory that venture funding expects or mm. that their investors expect. And what you see is they just basically turn into an SME. They're not growing just at a fast stagnant. Yeah, existing. Okay. You know, it's a business. It might generate a small profit, but it's not returning shareholder equity. Mm-hmm. And the people that have invested that have equity in the business, it's kind of hell for them because they can't divest that. There's no liquidity event, but the thing doesn't die. So you can't write it off mm. for, for tax reasons or, or whatever. So you're just kind of stuck, stuck. with it. <laughs> yeah. And, 
And so I think that when you go out and you make that conscious decision to raise money, you're on the clock, basically get to a growth stage mm-hmm. uh, where you're, the company's growing, the business is growing, and you're moving towards that liquidity event that you want to have, whether that is, you know, an acquisition or an IPO or something mm-hmm. uh, that creates that moment uh, mm-hmm. that shareholders are looking for. How important is that exit strategy and having that in place from the beginning, from the outset? Yeah, I heard this, I think, when I was in university and at various points, but they say never start a business without an exit strategy. Right. And a lot of startups don't have an exit strategy when they mm-hmm. start. I think they everyone has a... Like it might be very loosely defined, like, yeah, we want IPO maybe, or we're going to sell it to these guys, but I'd say be more deliberate about it. Mm. You know, you think it's very important. I think it's very important because if you're going out and pitching and you're saying, this is the point I want to get to, you know, somebody can work the numbers backwards and say, okay, these guys are on an IPO trajectory or they're on an acquisition trajectory. And, Mm. you know, but a lot of people just get started. There is that you know, I think it's a motivational poster was just like, you know, it's better to start and fail or, or you know what I mean? Sure, it's like, yeah. just get started. Exactly. It's Take like, that step. Yeah. yeah. But with startups and businesses, you got to be a little bit more deliberate if you're going to go out and take outside money. If you can fund your own business and you can launch it and start it yourself without taking outside money besides debt, then fine. You can more power to you, more power to you. You can kind of be a little more loose in terms of what the end goal is. Mm. But, you know, when you go out and you fundraise, that is not just a a sales pitch deck. That is your blueprint for the investors to see, okay, if they do all these things and hit these milestones, then they'll have a liquidity event or they'll get to this exit point. Mm -hmm. And here here is where I make my money and, you know, crunch the numbers. Mm. So the other mistake I think a lot of founders make is as the company grows and as the rounds go on, the fundraising process gets harder. Mm. So seed or pre-seed now, as we're saying, and, and also there's no defined like, what you know, pre-seed is or the what a- first, the first raise is pre-seed. No, it's not written anywhere. It's friends and family pre-seed seed. Pre-A, A, like I've heard everything. Yeah. And that's the other takeaway. There really isn't, you know. There's no blueprint. There's no. There's yeah. no like uh, your first round is this. It's not like NFL draft pick. You know, it's not sequential mm-hmm. necessarily, but there is just kind of a, a trajectory. So I think what I always advise founders is don't think about this round. Think about the next two or three rounds too and how the round you're raising now impacts those. Mm. And too many founders lose sight of that. Uh, and then secondly, in the earlier rounds, there is no DD typically or the diligence is macro. Hmm. It's the market, particularly early stage VCs or angel investors. You know, they're looking at macro things. Is this an interesting space to be in? Is it a growing space to be in? Hmm. Uh, That company that they're investing in might not have revenue. Adam Newman and Flow <laughs> right. probably Flow probably doesn't have revenue is my guess, but you know, it's a it's an interesting space to be in. Hmm. You know, so a lot of the times a lot of founders that raise early in their pre-revenue and maybe even pre-MVP getting their minimally viable product out, mm-hmm. you know, there isn't really no diligence. It's, hmm. I like you, I like the team, exactly. the idea is good. It's a growing industry or market. You don't have much competition. Yeah. I mean, whatever people's criteria are. And it's like, here's 250,000 mm-hmm. or half a million. Mm-hmm. And people can raise their seed rounds easily. And then when they go to the A, they don't realize that the A is going to be very, very different. Your company's at a different stage. The investor profile is going to be different because you're moving away from early stage VC money or angel investors to kind of 
people with investment philosophies are for A rounds. Right. And they don't realize that the diligence and what goes into that round is completely different a lot of the times. Yeah. If it's institutional money, then it's yeah. a whole oh, different when you ball get, game. When you get down to, to, you know, if you start going after sovereign wealth funds or government backed venture or corporate venture capital, even <laughs> the diligence, the bar is really, really high. Yeah. So I think, you know, what a lot of founders, the advice I would say is when you raise that seed round, hey, you're on the clock, adapt for the next two rounds mm. because the diligence is going to get harder. You need to, if you're in SaaS, you need to know like lifetime customer value, customer acquisition costs. You have to have those numbers down. Mm -hmm. um, you need to know what your burn rate is, growth trajectory, all those sorts of things. And if you really know those numbers, your A round is going to be easier. If you don't have that because you think the A round is going to be like the seed, mm. then you're, you're going to be struggling to raise money. Right, right. How important is the founder or the founding team? You know, I actually have this philosophy where I don't think the founders are the end all be all of the company. Mm. It's the people they surround themselves with. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Right. That founding team, the people that you're putting around you in number one, it shows investors. You, you don't have much of an ego. If you, it, you know what you know and you know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of investors like to see that because they don't want to back founders with big egos. Mm -hmm. They want founders that say, hey, I don't know supply chain. I'm building a hardware product. I'm going to go why out I brought and, this guy along. I'm going to hire this guy. Mm -hmm. Or if you can't hire the guy, at least show that you're having discussions and that when you raise the money, you can bring that person on board and they have a you know, a, a contingent commitment saying, yeah, if you raise, I'll join you guys. So surrounding yourself with the right people and bringing that right talent on board, mm -hmm. very important. Also, you know, I've heard a story recently where if you bring somebody really big with staying power into a very senior role, that can drive your valuation up too. Because all of the intrinsic value that comes with them, their network, their contacts, the respect that they have, if you're in, say, SaaS, a certain sector or segment of the market in SaaS, mm -hmm. and you bring a big name person on board, like right. you think about Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg bringing Sheryl Sandberg on board, and what that did for the company mm -hmm. um, in terms of telegraphing to investors into the world about the seriousness of the business. Right. So, you know, you have, I think a lot of founders kind of, I want to grow this into a unicorn and they kind of want to do it on their own, mm -hmm. but it's like, dudes, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be a unicorn, do what you need to do to be a unicorn. And most of the successful founders, I think, realize, put people around you that help you get there. Mm. You're not going to do it alone. You know, there's that saying, go, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Exactly. Um, Right. And really the latter one, I think is if it's a binary choice, definitely mm. the latter one is more important. So what about good leadership? What do you think good leadership is? And have you? Oh, have gosh. You? <laughs> good leadership is, uh, well, I did Civil Air Patrol when I was in the United States. Uh, for those that don't know what Civil Air Patrol is, it's the Air Force Auxiliary. And it is basically the military version of the Boy Scouts. Um, oh, I've never heard it like that. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, we are, we're not conscripted into the U.S. military, but we are uh, auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force. Okay. And, you know, it's 14, 15 year olds, you know, you go through, you get rank, you have a uniform, your blues and your uh, 
fatigues and uh, you do training. If somebody crashes their Cessna, you go find the ELT. So there's training oh. on search and rescue. We had a tornado rip through Cincinnati and I was in Civil Air Patrol and we got the call to go do disaster assistance. Um, so it's a great organization and they teach you leadership. Mm. Um, so I was actually the leadership officer from my squadron mm. in Cincinnati and they also teach you like aerospace. So and then okay. you test on those every month to move up in rank. Huh. Um, so I was actually the leadership officer. Leadership is people say you can't teach it. I think it's you can teach the mechanics of it, but whether or not it takes hold in someone, it's a personality it's thing. An idiosyncratic it, it, thing. Yeah. yeah, it's either born with it or you're not. Mm. And you know, I think if you look at like business leaders and stuff, and successful startup business leaders, you know, people at the end of the day crave honesty mm. in businesses, mm -hmm. even if it's bad news. My dad always likes talking about don't do the easier wrong, do the harder right, which is sometimes the right thing is the harder thing, wow. but that's the thing you should be doing. Right. And I think in that leadership. Integrity integrity character and really actually at the end of the day all humans really just want honesty yeah. you know even if it's bad news and we tend to shy away from it like just don't want to have that conversation with somebody or whatever mm -hmm. so we don't you know handle it the right way because it's a little easier for us and we think it's easier and that's what that person wants but really you know at the end of the day like if you're letting staff go you know people just want to be told the truth and honest Right. Honesty with them, like, hey, this is happening. The company's growing. You're not going to grow with it, sadly. This mm. is, you know, you should go do certain things elsewhere. And, and those people might have success elsewhere. So, mm. and, you know, you got to lead by example as well. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's it, it. You know, you're never going to get people to do things that you're not doing yourself. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, you know, really basics like that, you know, startup founders over history that have had success just go back and there's tons of media on this. And we talk about it at Startup Grind as well. Mm -hmm. so. so for any of these kind of young founders out there, who are some interesting business leaders or companies that you think people should kind of focus on to like case study? And yeah, I think in this part of the world, and I'll just use Singapore as an example, because mm -hmm. The number of unicorns Singapore is minting is uh, uh, that are coming out of Singapore, I should say, is pretty significant. If I look at some of the founders there, so Aaron Tan from Caro, uh, they're now a unicorn. We interviewed him in 2018 for Startup Grind, back when they were a lot smaller. He came out of, I think he was on the venture side uh, before with Singtel, mm. maybe the one of the telcos and their mm -hmm. venture arm. Mm. Uh, if I'm getting that right. So nobody quote me. on. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to remember this stuff off the top of my head. But Aaron, we had him on and, you know, they have grown that into a unicorn around the region. Uh, one of my friends actually runs uh, their Thailand operation. What do they do? Uh, it's used car marketplace. OK, so what do we have in the US? I think it's CarMax or, right. or one of those. Exactly. And, you know, they have been able to really grow that business. And Aaron, actually, he, he gives really great advice, I think. And uh, how he's grown the business, I think, is just really if you're an early founder and you're trying to see some successes in Asia, I think Aaron Tan from Carl is really good. Anthony Tan from uh, from Grab, obviously, mm -hmm. what Grab has been able to do in Southeast Asia, driving, you know, basically acquiring Uber's operation there right and you know being becoming a super app mm. in a lot of ways mm -hmm. um but you know you look at anthony ton and he's done a lot of media interviews and talks about his habits and everything like how he conducts and goes about running the business i think bloomberg did a piece on him you know these are founders that were able to to scale up pretty quickly you know carousel in singapore like a used marketplace you know selling your items 
what they've been able to do, the three founders there. I mean, it's pretty impressive. So, mm. uh, and then you would kind of go beyond Singapore to Southeast Asia. You have Tokopedia or GoTo Group now in Indonesia, what they've been able to do mm. um, in that market and, you know, bringing their company public on the stock exchange in Jakarta. There's some really inspiring stories. Mm. Uh, in the region, you know, not just in Singapore, but, you know, Vietnam's got some really exciting startups happening in Southeast Asia. The whole ASEAN region. Yeah, ASEAN is, uh, Myanmar was having before the political stuff sadly happened, right. but there was a, a startup ecosystem seed that was kind of taking hold, I would say. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was some, some startups. Uh, I mean, there's great entrepreneurs everywhere in the world. Um, mm. One of my favorite startup grind stories uh, was I went to the global conference the first year I went to like actually network and interact with other startup grind directors. We were meeting in San Francisco and the hotel that we had in San Francisco was near the airport, uh, just like a nondescript hotel. Nice, but I get there and I, I rock up to the desk to check in. And the first other director I met was the uh, startup grind director from Mogadishu, Somalia. Wow. Yeah. So Mohammed was Mohammed was his name. Yeah. And mm. so you know, and he was warm, friendly, and nice. And like he told me he was from Mogadishu, and I was just like. Wow. wow. Yeah. You exactly. know, there's great entrepreneurs everywhere. He had a flower shop and I think a, a laundry service or a dry cleaner or something. Uh, and he sadly was uh, gunned down in, in Mogadishu for the, basically the work that he was doing in the startup world. He was uh, murdered. Uh, oh, and it no really, way. yeah, yeah, it really affected us. Like we were just all in shock, like the whole community. It was really tough. But I think his memory lives on because he really planted the seed for entrepreneurship. Mm. in Mogadishu you know so that that was my story with him he was the first other person I met wow. you know he was checking in I'm like you're sorry he's like yeah I'm the Mogadishu director and he was the nicest guy like you oh, know he was man. just a ray of sunshine and really just trying to propel entrepreneurship and startups forward in Mogadishu yeah and Africa needs that it's so right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and like you know more broadly speaking, you know, and, and people have picked up the torch there to kind of carry his legacy on, which is really sure. wonderful to see. But, you know, World Economic Forum actually came out with, a, I think it was about two years ago, an article where they kind of listed five startup ecosystems outside of Silicon Valley that are burgeoning. And Israel's like, I don't yeah, know if there was a rank order, but mm. it was Israel, Singapore. Lagos? Uh, Kenya was on that list, Kenya. too. I believe Kenya was on that list as well. And I forget the other two, but wow. um, I, I know the Tel Aviv startup grind director, Shahar, you know, he's a good friend. And uh, we put together an event about building bridges between Singapore and Israel because there is a lot of linkage. So, you know, there's great entrepreneurs and startups all over the world just because you're in, you know, a part of the world that is not a quote unquote startup hub. Mm. Uh, you know, we had Kabul, Afghanistan chapter. Uh, wow. Ahmad is now uh, the community manager for Startup Grind for APAC. Okay. Uh, started the Afghanistan Kabul chapter and they had lots and lots of people. Him and I talk regularly and like he was telling me the story, sharing with me photos about how he grew the chapter there and like how he was able to really, and it's, it's really heartening to see because, you know, capitalism and entrepreneurship, this helps improve people's lives. You're not just doing it for yourself, but you're creating jobs for others. You're helping other people, creating shareholder value too, potentially, if you're mm. taking venture money or angel money. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're out there in the world, like trying to make it better 
you know, and create opportunities for people. Mm. So, and I think a lot of founders, like, you know, I haven't myself been a founder, but, you know, I think one of the things, if, let's say I was, mm. I think one of the more exciting things to me would not just be the money I would raise. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't let that go to my head. I think it would be seeing jobs that I've created and impacting other people's lives. Mm. So, and then that's what we really try to do at Startup Grind as well is connect founders, you know, help others, give first, make friends. Those are our core values. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just connecting people that are, are trying to get started. So, uh, yeah, it's really you know, great when you see that stuff happening. So for young aspiring founders, where do you think are the most interesting industries nowadays that they should be kind of looking into or where there's a need? Uh, it really depends. If you're in software, SaaS. Yep. You software can, as a service. Software as a service, uh, either account-based management or self-service SaaS. Mm. You can scale that pretty quickly to get your product, get your MVP built. It's a man hours requirement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you throw what resources you need to at the project, hire a team of four, hire a team of 14, you know, do what you need to do to get out there. You can scale pretty quickly, Mm. which means you can get faster returns. Also, you know, talking to VC friends, there's a lot of companies that just don't touch hardware. They just focus extremely on the diligently software on software because right. you know the the capital expenditures needed to get to scale is not as much as like a hardware business or a tangible product of course now that's not to say that there's people out there that don't want to invest in tangible products mm. or hardware um in fact there's lots of you know vc firms that that is their focus mm. you know because you know founders also need to realize this at the end of the day all vc firms are not created equal mm-hmm. right you know they go out, they, you know, they start a fund, they go, they find LPs for that fund and they have to go pitch those guys exactly. and say, this is our investment philosophy. This is what we're going to focus on. This is, you know, they have to put the whole roadmap together for that. Mm. So there's people that are going to carve, uh, that will have VC firms or funds that are going to carve out what their calling card is. Sure. And you need, yeah, you need to find people that, you know, focus on that. So mm. that's the other thing too. I think a lot of founders struggle with is finding the right VCs. And exactly. there are some people that are trying to tackle that. that are trying to be a place where you can connect connectors or founders or starters. Uh, one of the former startup grind directors has started something called founders layer, um, which is, you know, there's some projects on there, funding, funding opportunities. Um, mm. So startups can go check that. And then they work with connectors as well. So uh, he's trying to get that off the ground, but you know, being very deliberate about specific investors that you want to talk to. Money is not the same. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a dollar is a dollar, Mm -hmm. but what comes with that dollar is different strings. Yeah. You know, uh, you're going to find, and that's also the other thing too, if you're raising, it's a marriage, it's uh, picking the right investors. And sadly, a lot of startups don't have the luxury of doing this because they need the capital. So You know, it is a negotiation, but if you're in a spot where you you can pick and choose, you want to bring investors on board that provide a lot of strategic value, I think, Mm. and let you run the business how you see fit, Mm -hmm. uh, which they will do if your pitch is good right? and your vision is good. There's a lot of investors that will want to be a little bit more hands-on and and then some that just don't have experience in that sector, but want in on it. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, I think the ones founders really need to watch out for. Mm. You see this a lot like with the metaverse and web three now, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, 
You know, there's a lot of hype and it is an interesting space. And I think there's great opportunities for startups, founders, everybody. But there's probably a few people that are just trying to get in on it because it's the hype and, you know, the match between the founder and the investor might not be so good. Right. So and that can create friction and problems. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. Exactly. So, so you're not so hot on the crypto and blockchain space. What's the price of Bitcoin right exactly. now? <laughs> no, I actually, I think my personal opinion on cryptocurrency is it makes sense in theory. Like, you know, there's a limited supply of Bitcoin, so you can't have, you know, it's not like, you know, fiat currencies where central banks can just keep printing it and, yeah, and exactly. central banks can you know, for lack of a better term, control or manipulate mm -hmm. uh, things. So, you know, with crypto, it, there's not an infinite supply, you know, and I know a lot of friends that believe very early on in crypto and have done very well for themselves, which, you know, I give them a lot of credit. Mm. Um, but, you know, a lot of people got in too late and then got burned, got Possibly. greedy. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, it, it does make sense. And I, I think, you know, we're still... 10 or 20 years away from it to be widely adopted. Mm. Um, I know El Salvador, I think, made it its official currency or yeah. it was one of those Central American countries. And, you know, I don't think you're going to see too much of that, but um, it's, it's going to be more widely accepted. And, you know, the markets are just mm -hmm. all over the place right down. now. Yeah, they're up and down and it's just it's volatile. So mm. uh, I think just my personal opinion, like I'm not so hot on crypto mm -hmm. just yet. Yeah, they're still waiting for the cycles to, you know, crash and burn, rise and falls, trying right. to wait for those to, to, to stabilize out. a bit. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned SaaS, software as a service. What about e-commerce, fintech, logistics? These yeah, lo of logistics. I mean, if the pandemic taught us anything is, you know, e-commerce is not going away anytime soon. And, mm -hmm. you know, for for everything brands and you look at Shopify and how they've been able to grow and the number of e-commerce stores that people have created, it's, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. uh, if not millions globally. So e-commerce is not going anywhere, you know, so creating better experiences online is a big, big area, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I think offline retailers going online and you know how those two worlds are colliding is oh, pretty oh, big yeah mm -hmm. yeah offline merge online is what right. it's called i believe and and i have some experience in this because you know i do mentorship and one of the startups i mentor and help uh with now is uh in the e-commerce space and so all of that is pretty i think ripe area where you know it's not gonna be a fad and then disappear mm. like some other startups have right. uh, that came about during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, I think remote work, anything with remote work, um, you've seen, I think, was it remote.io or one of those remote services companies that was born out of the pandemic has done really, really well. You know, what we've seen is prior to the pandemic, there were a few companies that were like, yeah, we're fully distributed. We're fully remote. We got people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, yeah, all right. But the pandemic accelerated things five or 10 years. And then everyone figured out, actually, yeah, we can have a team in various parts of the world. It does not matter where they are. Mm. So that, um, you know, the PEO services, the big players like Velocity Global is one of them that was on the Inc. 5000 a couple of years ago. Like, I think they were number two on the list, even hmm. growing like crazy or something like TopTal or Remote or Multiplier out of Singapore. 
that mm. have these talent pools and also can localize those people in the market. So they're not a freelancer. Like, so you don't need to go open up an office or set up a legal entity in these markets to actually like take care of your staff there. There are services for that. Right. Yeah. That's not going away anytime soon, in my opinion. So e-commerce, last mile logistics, mm. uh, just the supply chain woes that the world is having now. Exactly. Yeah. So for SaaS, those are probably really good areas. And then I think also like health tech mm. is right. pretty life big sciences. as well. Life sciences, AI, ML in life sciences is probably a pretty good area to be in as well. Mm. Yeah. So uh, why are you in Taiwan now? So you yeah. were the uh, director at Singapore Grind in still, Singapore. Still, still, still the you, uh, Yes, you are still the director, but yeah. you are you have <laughs> been in Taiwan and for now, quite a now bit. Now the borders are reopening. And so it's like I'll be in Singapore in September, October and November. So, oh, OK. Yeah, so it's like things are coming back. But my story is a little bit interesting. Uh, you know, I was doing work for a Singapore company doing a remote talent sales for a Singapore or a company with an operation in Singapore. So I was Singapore staff had the Singapore work visa. Um, but you know, I could work from anywhere. Mm. And most of our clients were in the West. So I spent a lot of time in the US in 2019. And then I was just in Boston when all of this went down and Singapore closed its borders. So so I couldn't get back in. Um, and then lost my job. Me and the other sales guy got let go. Uh, and you know, we were servicing clients in the startup space. So I think it was pretty rough as well for a lot of our clients, uh, and the staff that we had in Manila, people were cutting headcount all over the world. Right. And that obviously affected us. And I, uh, was just in Boston and then I was like, I had the flight booked back to Singapore hmm. and then uh, it was via Japan. I still remember it. And I remember calling up uh, the ministry in Singapore. I was like, I'm just transiting in Tokyo. And they're like, yeah, you got to do quarantine. And then your company has to ask for permission for you to come back. Oh, wow. Because you had an employment pass at the time. So I was just like, okay, I'll just stay put here. Mm. I'm in Boston, probably the medical capital of the U.S. Mm. Um yeah, we'll get a hold of this thing. This thing's not gonna, you know, exactly. be just a, a few couple weeks, months. <laughs> a few weeks, month or two, or whatever. And I actually knew one or two other people on business trips outside of Singapore that were on employment passes that couldn't get back for months, mm. um, just because of the border restrictions. And then, you know, losing the employment pass, I'm like, oh gosh, like I can't go back. Yeah. I, the good thing was I had stuff in storage already. I didn't really have a place in Singapore, so I, I wasn't That's stuck good. with a condo. Yeah. It was a lot of people sitting empty. That. Yeah, a lot of people yeah. had that, but I was in Boston and um, like trying to figure out what to do next. And somebody had mentioned the gold card to me for Taiwan. Mm, I've lived mm -hmm. in Asia a very long time. I've come to Taiwan a bunch. The and I'll go back to the Model UN story. Right, it's probably a good time to talk about it. My first time in Taiwan, and it was only the second country in Asia after Singapore. Singapore, Thailand, and then Taiwan. Okay. Uh, it was only the second place in Asia I'd been after moving to Singapore. And I did Model UN. Our kind of athletic conference or who we competed against or like did these things with was Taipei, Manila, Jakarta, Bangkok, and Kuala Lumpur in Singapore. Mm, okay. You know, every kind of semester or quarter we would do these events. So like sometimes we'd host basketball uh, or sports events. Sometimes we'd have to travel. And the Taipei American School hosted the Model United Nations Conference. Mm, what year was this? 2001. Okay. So... Oh. 
Um, we flew up here. We got bus right to Tianmu. Yep, up in the uh, hills. Up, up in the, the hills. Golden Hills. You know, there's no internet on your phone at this stage, so it's like I can't look at Google Maps. <laughs> um, and you stay with a the family there, so there was, I think there was like three of us uh, in a house. It was around November, almost. I think it was around Thanksgiving, actually. Hmm. Um, so, and then we did the conference. If anybody knows Taiwan's history with the United Nations, this is <laughs> what's kind of ironic: is that you have a model UN conference in Taiwan. Right. And that's funny. So the conference opens up, we go to TAS, there's lots of media security. And like, we didn't know what was going on. We show up there and the vice president of Taiwan at the time, Annette, Annette Liu. I remember this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she opened the conference. Yeah. And I mean, the optics were pretty good because you got a UN flag next to the vice president of Taiwan. And that was the front page of the Taipei Times the next day, her getting flowers waving. And I think the flag is, I, I still have the front page of the newspaper somewhere. That's amazing. Yeah. So she basically, you know, I think, what was I, 17 at the time? And we're just sitting there. The speech went something like, welcome to Taiwan. Hope you have a great conference. And then just spends the next like 15 minutes on a diatribe against China. No way. About getting kicked off out of the UN. Right. I, I think the word bully was used once or twice. Like it's so long ago, but obviously. And we're just sitting there like, wow. wow. How are we supposed to follow up on that? Yeah. Like, <laughs> are we okay? And, and. I mean, obviously it angered China, but you know, it was, wow. so that was my first time. I, the first time I had bubble tea. Okay. That was yeah. just coming about. Yep. I think, uh, the, the host family, they took us to, I think it was a hair salon. And then there was like a little bubble tea corner off on the side no. of it. And we walked around Tianmu and for the longest time, that was my impression of Taipei. <laughs> I thought that was Taipei. Like this. So when 101 was built, I was like, I wonder what part of town that's in. And then I came back right. in 2014. So about a 13 year gap. I'd wow. flown through the airport a bunch, but right, never, but never came really. out. And I came in 2014 and I was staying in, uh, where was I staying? I was staying somewhere out in Banchow. Okay. Uh, I was like, wow, it's really flat out here. Uh, the Burbs. The river. I don't remember this. <laughs> and then I'm at the, the original Din Daifeng in Dongmen. Yep. I'm like looking around, see 101. I'm like, I don't recognize any of this. And I finally open up. <laughs> my smartphone yeah, and right. I look where TAS is. I'm like, oh, oh, that's way out there. I've never been to Taipei. <laughs> <laughs> like I really hadn't been to Taipei before. So, right. yeah. So 2014, I think it was back in 2016, 2017. I came here with my brother, my friend came here in 2019 when I was a digital nomad and mm. had always really liked it and everything. The food didn't Taifung is, you know, Shalom mm. Bao's, uh, mm, and mm, you know, mm. they're not the only Shalom Bao in town. Uh, right. actually somebody told me there's still a place here that does it the kind of the old school way that puts pine needles down Whoa, instead of the like cloth. As a bed. Oh, wow. Yeah. To steam it. So you get this, you get I got to find where it is. There. Yeah. I think we got to go, go for those, but let's do it. Um, you know, so Shalom Bao's are one of my favorite 10 favorite things to eat in the world. <sighs> um, beef noodle soup mm. and, uh, I've done stinky tofu. Uh, Can you do it? They're not really, <laughs> but the one that I did it at kind of near my house, kind of nondescript on the side of the road was really pretty, pretty nice. Like I, I, I was able to handle Yeah. I'm not really like durian in Singapore. Durian. Not That's happening. That's not easy. Not happening. I don't like it either. Yeah. The texture, the smell, it's just not happening. What about me. durian ice cream? 
that one I've done before. And yeah. it's like, I feel like I'm cheating. So I, you exactly. know. Exactly. All that sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes Pizza Hut has the durian pizza in Thailand. So maybe is that a whirl some, I don't know. But, uh, but, but <laughs> yeah, so it. stinky tofu, I did it. It was actually pretty firm. And, hmm. you know, when I go back and order again, like I'm not craving it, but, hmm. you know, I did it and I was like, okay, you know, right. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Um, trying to think of the other Taiwanese food and dishes I like. Uh, oh, and Tainan. Uh, Tainan. Mm, Tainan uh, has good food. Yeah. Tainan beef soup. Mm, um, yeah. Milkfish soup there. Yeah. Um, Tainan's got excellent Their beef food. is really good, too. Kind of like raw beef a little bit. Yeah, it's yeah. Like very you see, thinly sliced. You see the the people like cutting the beef for the yeah. Tainan soup. Exactly. Beef soup, and it is just unlike any beef you've ever seen. Totally. It's so dark and it's so lean. Yep. So yeah, Tainan's got great. I mean, it's the foodie capital of Taiwan. Mm. Uh, Taiwan breakfast, obviously. Mm-hmm. Oh, you do the Taiwan breakfast. I've done the Taiwan breakfast. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, it's good. What did I have the other day? Uh, like the pancake and everything. Scallion pancakes, oh, obviously. Yep. It's, yeah. So the best one I ever had was in Walian. Oh. Uh, okay. Out of like a food truck sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So it, you know, and then. Japanese food here is mm, some of the always best good. outside of Japan. Yep. So yeah, I mean, it had really liked Taiwan. And then someone told me about the gold cart program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'd seen how great Taiwan had done handling COVID, just mm-hmm. a masterful job, how normal life was here. I knew a few people here. I knew about the startup ecosystem, very kind of nascent in its mm. early days, very similar to where Singapore was, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the gold card program, I think the creation of that and the objective of that just made total sense. And so I applied and I got it and flew over here and paid my quarantine dues. <laughs> exactly. 14 days in a hotel, a hotel. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I say hotel. It's a, yeah, I heard it's not that. an Ohio that. thing, but you know, if my family ever listens to this podcast, they're just going to be laughing because I get so much grief Hotel. over that. Hotel. Sounds Hotel. like Canadian or something. Maybe it is. I don't know where I picked it up, but uh, you know, so I'm stuck in that room for 14 days and you know, just got out and felt like a breath of fresh air, literally. Yeah, right. And just, you know, you kind of feel your soul coming back mm. and then just got out there and, and networked, met people at Taiwan Startup Stadium, Mox, SOSV, just started to really get out there. The Gold Card Office did some networking programs and events and everything. And, you know, it, it's been really great to be here and then find opportunities to, to help startups. You know, there's a lot of resources, you know, connections and network that i have in singapore and u.s mm-hmm. and you know being able to help people here uh, has been great so yeah you know, and then there's so much to do in taiwan like you've got nature mountains mm-hmm. beaches you know the south great food if you're a cocktail person like tainan's got great cocktail bars mm-hmm. taipei does too mm-hmm. uh, and it's significantly cheaper than singapore so. right. <laughs> Um, so it's been good in that sense and, you know, working with some startups, helping one now, uh, in the e-commerce space, just trying to make an impact positively Mm. and also telling people about it, you know, Mm. the life that you can have here, how great Taiwan is. So Mm -hmm. that's how I got here. So you've been here for about two and a half years now, two years, two years. Okay. So what are your biggest kind of observations or takeaways about the Taiwan startup space? Okay. Uh, <laughs> some coffee in here? Oh, okay. Looks like tea, actually. We did get tea. I thought yeah. that was going to be water. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So like you mentioned earlier, we're about 10 or 12 years where Singapore was about 10 or 12 years ago. So when I did that startup there, you know, the family offices I was talking about earlier, even the way the Singapore government, and if you really want a government in the world that has just done such an amazing job of building a country and managing it and running it and creating value for its citizens, I think you don't have to look any further than Singapore. Talk about leadership, Lee Kuan Yew. Absolutely. You know, one of the most consequential leaders in the last 150 years in a positive way. There's been a lot of consequential leaders that have gone the <laughs> other, other way. ways. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Lee Kuan Yew, you know, if you look at Singapore, they were kicked out, newly independent, no natural resources. And the thing that he did, and I've read his memoirs, 75% because they're like a thousand pages, both volumes, but mm-hmm. he is just, uh, and I heard him speak once in person and he's just an amazing individual Mm-hmm. And what he did, okay, we don't have any natural resources. Our people are our resources, basically, was the philosophy. Mm. And they said, everyone's going to learn English. That's our national language. Yeah. If you don't have English, the foreign and direct investment's not going to come here. That, if they don't do that, they're not what they are today, I think. Mm. Um, so that was one of the most consequential decisions, I think, Lee Kuan Yew made and one of those kind of like seminal moments that really was important for Singapore. So, you know, what that country has been able to do in one generation, and we're not talking one generation in 50 years, we're talking literally 25, 30 years, because in the 90s, it was already very well developed and advanced. Yeah. And that's 25 ish years after. So they just did their 57th National Day uh, last week. So, you know, they have been able to just do a rather miraculous thing Mm -hmm. in that amount of time. The education system, creating that kind of from third world to first, which I believe is the title of the memoir, in a generation Mm. is is nothing short of remarkable. So there's a lot of parallels in the Singapore government. I could be getting this wrong, but this is the perception that I had. It was back in like 2010 or 2008, 2009, 2010, if you were doing a startup, I just remember it being like SMEs, small and medium enterprises, and it was just kind of like a catch-all phrase. Right. And that could apply to like a small hawker center stall or maybe like a small repair shop or a four person startup, so to speak. Okay. And they kind of diversified it. There was multiple government agencies that looked after various things. There was International Enterprise Singapore, which was to help Singaporean companies go global. You had the EDB of Singapore, which is to bring foreign direct investment in, mostly the Fortune 500s, but they've got EDBI, which is kind of their startup investment arm, Mm. so to speak. Uh, You had Enterprise Singapore, you had Spring Singapore, and they've completely adapted the government apparatus to support the startups. You have mm. SG Innovate, which is deep tech, AI, machine learning focused. Uh, that is a hybrid. Best way to describe them, and they're a community partner of ours, is, um, you know, they started it was about five years ago. Their main shareholder is the government, but they're kind of like accelerator fund in one that is a government entity, but not quite. Um, mm. So... Singapore's just done a really good job kind of adapting and creating an environment that's conducive for startups and businesses to start. You know, we had Adrian Bartel, who uh, is a co-founder of Sleek, Sleek.sg. He spoke 
And him and his other co-founder basically disrupted and created a way, you know, when you register a business, you got to get corporate secretary, you got to go do all these things Mm -hmm. um, in Singapore. And you can basically go on sleek and get that all done online in like 30 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, I've asked him, I'm like, Adrian, come to Taiwan, like right. do this. And, and, you know, they're going to like where common law countries are and where digital signatures are accepted. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so what Singapore did a really great job of and, and, and Taiwan, I believe is well aware of this. They have great links with Singapore, economic mm-hmm. links. They look at Singapore and I think it's a model for many governments around the world. But, you know, what Singapore really did a great job was creating the environment and creating a fertile ground for startups to succeed. Mm. Uh, And then the money started coming in and now it's the fundraising hub for Asia. You have a lot of startups here in Taiwan, Vietnam, elsewhere in the region that are domiciled there because it's easier to raise capital there. I see a lot of parallels where Taiwan is now where Singapore was about 10 or 12 years ago. And all the ingredients are there. It's like all the elements are there. Like there's a good education system here. You know what Taiwan has been able to accomplish in the hardware OEM space. Of course. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's I mean, world class. World class. Mm-hmm. World class. There's no reason that you can't have a vibrant startup ecosystem. When we say startups, we're mainly talking SaaS because that's what people think of, of with startups, right? Uh, or crypto or something mm-hmm. along those lines in fintech. Fintech. Yeah. So you're starting to see this groundswell. You've had. You know, I think Appier's success mm. coming out of Taiwan, yep. even though most of the revenues in Japan, I believe, and mm. they listed in Tokyo for that reason. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you had these companies, you got Gogoro on the hardware side mm. of things. Uh, you very know, the, cool the, company. Very cool company. Yep. Very cool scooters. Yeah. Very cool quiet product. Quiet scooters. Which, I love those things. <laughs> yeah. They're a little quiet, though, because, you know, it's part, a little scary, right? <laughs> it's a little scary because part of like your sensory of like uh, there's a scooter like coming yeah, no, hundred percent. It's yeah. dangerous. I mean, it can be. Oh, I was walking near yeah. Carrefour in Nehu the other day, and some guy just came to park his scooter. But he he started on the sidewalk way further down than he should have, and it was just probably going thirty kilometers an hour. Oh like, wow! It just whizzed right by me, and it's a gas scooter, so I could hear it. Right. If it's Gogoro, it's gonna be exactly just like little, Barely, little, little, just sound. like a little gravel. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, those are good examples. I remember in Singapore, you know, I, I kind of talked to people about this and, you know, a lot of people I talked to, there are a lot of locals in Singapore founders, the parents uh, or their family would be like, why are you doing this startup? Why are you sleeping on couches, eating ramen noodles? Why do you want to do this? You should work for a bank. You should do this, do that, uh, of course. create a life. And, and people didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you get that in a lot of parts of the world. And then you just see, I think it was, there was two key moments in Singapore where that were really pivotal and really kind of added an accelerant to the startup ecosystem. One was when Eduardo Saverin moved to Singapore. Okay. Before Facebook, if you remember that, right before Facebook went public, um, he gave up his U.S. passport. Yeah, right. And he was in Singapore people kind of perked up and took notice. And he's like, I'm here because this is, you know, I, I don't Place. remember his exact mm. quote, but the general gist of it was, this is where there's opportunities and growth in this part of the world. So that was the first. And then mm. the second was, I think, Grab mm. coming about, moving yeah. down from Malaysia right. into Singapore. So now a lot of what you'll hear is, you want to do a startup, you want to be like that Anthony Tong guy from Grab mm. or, or uh, well, he's got a co-founder, Wei Ling, as well but you know he's anthony's kind of the face of grab in a Mm. lot of ways and and so people identify grab with him and it's like oh you want to be like him yeah yeah yeah. you should go do it you should go do it right you know you've started to see culture started to change 
the culture mindset. started to change the mindset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The mindset is critically important to any startup ecosystem. You know, I talk about this with with friends. I was actually at a dinner the other night and we were just talking about it. Israel has the highest number of startups per capita in the world. Mm-hmm. Singapore produced forget how many unicorns it was in the last uh, last year. But Israel and Singapore significant. Israel's about nine million people. Singapore is about five, five and a half. Right. Yeah. They're both small. They're both kind of constrained. Uh, you look at where they are geographically, yeah. the neighborhoods that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mindset, you know, so it's like, why does, why did these kind of smaller countries yeah. resource constrained produce so many startups? Yeah. And why does a country or take Japan, for instance, it's a good example. Rakuten, Paiti, Mm-hmm. acquired by PayPal. And that's literally where it stops like yeah. startups that come top of mind. Right. And it really is that mindset in Israel. It's, you know, the mindset there amongst my Israeli friends in the startup space, there's a determination level. I think in Singapore, particularly the older generation and the younger generation has it, but it's, it's slightly different. It's the we're small. We got to survive that pioneer generation as they're referred to in Singapore, really mm-hmm. diligent, hardworking people realize our survival is dependent on us coming together and really working hard as one united people. And then the younger generation, I think, kind of has adapted that in their own right. So mindset and mentality is half the battle. Exactly. Even personally, if you're yeah. trying to do something, you know, if you think you can do something, you're going to probably put more energy and effort into it. And if you yeah, are a naysayer. If you really don't think you can, then. Yeah. So I think um, mindset's really important. Mm anywhere in the world. So back to Taiwan, there's a lot of great ideas and people here. And the advice I give founders in Taiwan, uh, you know, what we see in Singapore is startups don't create really for the Singapore market. They're there to just kind of incubate. A lot of cases, it's they're there to incubate, test market, test things out. It's got a high disposable income. So if if you're in SaaS, it's a good place to really kind of, you know, find your sea legs, Mm. get product market fit, and then you expand to Southeast Asia and then rest of Asia. Right. And you know, the Taiwan market, Mm. it kind of behaves very differently than a lot of other markets in Asia. Yeah. So I I tell founders, you know, my advice is if you're testing it out in Taiwan, you can get product market fit here. That does not necessarily mean you're going to get product market fit outside of Taiwan. Right. And, you know, there's some venture studios that are coming up now that are trying to work on getting Taiwanese companies for the U.S. market. And, you know, that product market fit. So making that transition from Taiwan to go global, you know, there's just a larger leap Mm -hmm. that they might have to make. So, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned Singapore, which is uh, about 4.5, 5 million people. 5.5, yeah. Uh, Israel, which is around... 9.29, 9, let's say. And when you were mentioning that, I was also thinking, of course, of Hong Kong as well. Yeah. Um, What do you think about Hong Kong, given, you know, the geopolitical shifting winds right Uh, now as well? um, I love... How do you feel? I have gone to Hong Kong. I probably... Hong Kong, besides Singapore, is probably the place in Asia I've been the most. Mm. Every job I've had in Singapore has required me to go to Hong Kong for work. I have been to Hong Kong probably 40, 50 times in my life. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It's, wow. It, 
it was like four or five times a year in some cases. Um, wow. Okay. You know, so I've, I've been there a lot. You know, I've loved Hong Kong. Like the first time I went, I was like, it was a bit of a culture shock. I was in university when I went 2002, you know, I didn't really like it the first time I went, but it grew on me like the <laughs> second or third time I went back. And then you get older, you got a little bit more money. It's a lot more fun. Yep, um, that's right. <laughs> and the startup ecosystem there and, and Jens Warburg, who runs uh, the startup grind chapter in Hong Kong is a great guy and a close friend uh, in the startup grind community. Uh, I was just talking to Jens last night because we're mm. going to do an APEC summit. Mm. Um, the startup ecosystem there is it's a little different than Singapore from my perception. I haven't spent a ton of time there, but you know, I think people looking at Asia, any company, it's like if you're not in manufacturing and you're just trying to have an Asia presence, the conversation was always Singapore or Hong Kong. Mm, exactly. Right. That's you know, why where I are we going to set it up? Um, right. And if you didn't have a China focus, yeah. Usually it's Singapore. Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. So startups, like a lot of people had always thought, and I have actually heard in Hong Kong, there's kind of like two startup camps. There's the startups that are kind of looking to the West and to mainland China. Sure. And then there's kind of the rest that are trying to look everywhere else east <laughs> to the rest of the world <laughs> right. and it's you know so there's like startups with the china focus startups with like rest of the world southeast asia focus maybe some domestic stuff but you know it's a, it's a different environment obviously hong kong has changed quite a bit i was in hong kong in 2014 mm. during the umbrella protest yeah. i remember Conant Drive being shut down. Mm. Uh, I was I was outside Ledgeco with journalists uh, from various news outlets covering that, just kind of standing next to them and chit chatting. Right. Uh, so you know, I saw all of that go on the first time around. The yeah, second, that was the first one, right? Yeah, the second one I wasn't there, but I I was there after stuff, and I remember walking around Kowloon West, kind of where the new HSR station is there, and seeing graffiti still on the sidewalks on the walls and you know just thinking like this city has changed so much mm -hmm. um and what you're seeing is i think it's been a real boon for singapore yeah. business right so much is coming from hong kong down to singapore now particularly for startups you know the singapore rental market there was just an article on bloomberg about a week or two ago about renting in singapore there's a lack of supply right now yeah um one of my friends actually just was telling me like it's insane, like people offering more right. than what the apartment's listed for. Yeah. And theorizing that a lot of people from Hong Kong are coming down to Singapore and then you didn't have stuff come online due to COVID uh, mm -hmm. or they got paused, you know, so there's just a lack of supply right now. Mm. Um, Hong Kong is a great startup ecosystem, but it's so different than Singapore. So it's a perennial question here in Taiwan, but taking advantage of these kind of shifting political winds, right? We're talking about the situation in Hong Kong being a boon for Singapore. Um, and people say that Taiwan should be able to take advantage of these kind of things. Uh, also, we mentioned that the ecosystem is in that perfect kind of ripe nascent stage yeah. where it's prime for growth. But you, you've what do had you think? some people come from Hong Kong. Like I've met a couple of gold card holders. Um, mm -hmm. You've had some high profile dissidents or yeah. artists that have come here. Right. Um, we, we had one on the podcast, Casey. Yeah. Yep. Um, that have come here and uh, you've had media, international media that's moved out of China or Hong Kong that are now based here. Yeah. Um, so in that way, Taiwan kind of wins in that sense. I think it's a little bit like to your point about how can Taiwan capitalize on the changing winds in Asia and what's happening kind of geopolitically in Hong Kong. Mm. I don't because Singapore and Hong Kong are two world financial hubs. Yeah. 
And Singapore is a lot easier to capitalize on those changing, you know, headwinds or tailwinds or whatever you want to call it because of its natural kind of position in the world markets and geographically in terms of how things are changing. And I think just because Taiwan is not the world financial hub like Hong Kong or Singapore at all, at all, (laughs) uh, that I I think that is probably why you're not going to get somebody in Hong Kong with a startup that's like, I'm going to move it to Taiwan. Because uh-huh. to them, they're still going to look at it and say, I still got geopolitical headwinds potentially. Yeah, exactly. Given what's been going on in the news on the political side of things right. uh, with the uh, military drills uh, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So not to delve into politics, but mm-hmm. you know, people look at these things like in business sure, and startups. Sure, you have to. I think one of the things, and I've heard you know whispers about this from one or two people in Silicon Valley and probably elsewhere if you ask VCs, is startups here like you know they have to look at risk exposure as well and if you're from taiwan or your operations are here it might actually be harder for them to come around to say i like what you do but you know just with all the geopolitical stuff i'm a little concerned yeah maybe unnecessarily concerned but people will look at that so you have those things that kind of create a larger uphill climb i think for the startup ecosystem here you know just as a, a foreigner that's here this is my perspective yeah. Because, um, you know, if you're going to raise money, there's not a lot of fundraising opportunities in Taiwan. It's nothing like Singapore or the Valley or elsewhere. Right. You know, that's where the dry powder really is. Mm. As a founder, you're going to have to think about these things. Right. So. So yeah. how do you think Taiwan could kind of bolster that part of the ecosystem uh, in terms of like financing and bringing yeah. FDI and stuff? We are talking about, you know, Lee Kuan Yew and in his strategy. Well, well I, I'm going to go back and say just copy what Singapore did during the pandemic mm. and how they were I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it was something along the lines of matching investments that were coming into Singapore companies. Mm. Um, you know, Singapore government has done a brilliant job of attracting FDI with, you know, the typical incentive packages that you typically do for larger corporations, right? tax breaks, those sorts sure. of things. Yep. Um, subsidies, subsidies, mm. but they've done a great job in the startup ecosystem too. not, you know, just blindly giving money away, but matching mm-hmm. or programs that are really well targeted and focused on specific industries like the economic development board of singapore you know has they're very focused in what they do usually like from what i remember is like five years like they were focused on pharma for a few years and then it shifted to another sector or whatever Mm. um you know i mean they're focused on anybody but you know Mm. really kind of making a big push to build up the pharmacist uh, Mm -hmm. ecosystem those sorts of things so very deliberate very focused on money and being a little more sophisticated mm-hmm. you know not handouts yeah you know exactly matching getting people like i think the matching one is great because what you do is you basically are you're outsourcing the diligence to professional vc investor venture fund funding and if they're going in then you go in right and you can create you know there's many different ways you can slice and dice this mm-hmm. but you can create and anytime you're using public funds any government in the world it's going to be scrutinized, obviously, mm. uh, by the populace. But there's ways you can do it where it can be done really smartly and you can deploy government funds potentially in a really thoughtful way versus just the, hey, we want to create this. Exactly. So, and I'm not saying that's what Taiwan's doing now, but these are just you know ideas. And it's stuff like this that is needed to really push that, push yeah. that and develop it. Yeah. Right. So, so what do you think are the biggest 
gaps there in Taiwan. So, you know, you were mentioning again, back to the Lee Kuan Yew story about uh, instituting English as the uh, national language. So yeah. um, Singapore's got four national languages. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chinese, Tamil, Malay, hmm. and English. And English. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So as we know, Taiwan has their, you know, kind of bilingual 2030 and they have yep. certain government initiatives towards this end. Yeah. Um, so language or other things, what do you think are things that Taiwan should or can focus now so that they can kind of reap those rewards maybe down the line? Yeah. The banking system for starters. Yeah. That we um, just alluded to. Yes. Yeah. Um, I believe it was the BBC had a great headline on it the other day and I'm probably going to get this wrong verbatim but it was I saw that article. will the banking system ever get out of the stone ages yeah. or out of the 80s or whatever exactly um i've watched people set up companies here the foreigners that have come in that are investing in taiwan the struggle they go you know the hoops that they got to jump through to yeah. to get things set up and this is applicable for any country in the world if mm. you have high regulatory barriers or high barriers to entry that's going to inhibit investment startup growth and a whole range of things 100%. So if you wanted, you know, if you go out there and you say you want to diversify or liberalize your economics, um, you know, you see Saudi Arabia doing this, mm. uh, moving away from uh, fossil fuels, fossil fuels <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and oil and trying to liberalize the economy to something that is more, I forget what the term is that they mm. use, but it's, you know, a thought economy, like something mm. that's more... Right moving away from, you know, polycarbonates and the oil, oil, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So when you do that, you got to change a lot of things. And, yeah. you know, Saudi Arabia, if you look at the changes, MBS is in Mohammed bin Salman, Salman has yep. made getting a tourist visa is now going to be easier. Getting mm. a business visa is going to be easier. There's going to be special economic zones. There's, There's going to be Neom. Do you, have you seen that city? The, yeah. the new future smart city? Yeah, I think the they, they want to build a glass wall city that's 100 miles long. I think that's more PR than anything because uh, that would crazy. take forever to build. But but these are things that they realize you got to do. You got to lower barriers to entry and change sort of things. So it's great to want startups. It's great to want to create a startup ecosystem. It's great to want to do all these things. But this is applicable to anywhere in the world. But if you don't change the stuff that needs to be done on the ground to make doing business easier, mm. you will have a tougher time doing that. Exactly. You know, we talked about mindset and you kind of perked up about that and, you know, really said that, yeah, I think that's a very important thing. Yeah. So I feel like that's what we're kind of dancing around here in Taiwan as well, right? That mindset, because you were talking about that, you saw that kind of shift in mindset in Singapore throughout their history, right? How do you think Taiwan can kind of uh, get through that or make the necessary changes so that they're able to kind of yeah, know, take th that mantle? I think, um, you know, in Singapore, like there's two years national service military conscription. Mm. That, that's part of that. And I think in countries where you have something like that, that feeds into mindset. My dad was in the military. He's a successful business person. Mm. And that military mindset has made him the leader that he is today, mm. the business executive. Yeah, that he one is of today. our guests was a uh, West Point grad, and he talked about that. Yeah, very deeply. Um, Taiwan doesn't have military conscription in the same way that it did five or ten years ago. From yeah, my understanding, not at all. It's only four months now. Yeah, it's only four months. So there is a linkage between mindset and and something like that mm. uh, for males. You know, so I think part of it 
how do you change mindsets? It's tough. It's so hard. It's really tough. I think in Taiwan's case, you know, really moving towards that bilingual 2030, that's a, a really good objective and continue to move towards that. For businesses that I see here, like banking, for instance, like, you know, my banking app is like halfway in English. <laughs> Things like that for businesses, if you were to put five startup founders around the table here and listen to what they were saying, five Taiwanese startup founders, you know, the capital getting investment, government support, organizing that maybe a little bit better might come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, just th- I'm just thinking of the conversations I've had. Yeah, exactly. Um, what have you yeah. heard? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, like uh, TTA, Taiwan Tech Arena, right. uh, just celebrated their fourth anniversary, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. And this is also what you've seen in other startup ecosystems. You got lots of people doing very similar things. You know, that linkage of trying to get and everyone to work together. Of, yeah. yeah. So like one of the first things I did when I got to Taiwan is I went to meet Taipei back in uh, 2020. Mm. I think it was October of 2020. I went to meet Taipei. Yep. And it was it was pretty cool to see. Startup festival in 2020 was like unheard of at yeah, the time. Totally. I think we were the only startup festival in Asia at the time. Yep. And it was really great to see some of the startups coming up that were demoing there, various entities and whatnot, but you know, it, it just felt very fragmented. Mm. Um and, you know, I, I saw this in Singapore, too, and then everyone just kind of got on the same page. And part of that was because the government was really proactive in doing that. So I think there's a lot of parallels and lessons from what Singapore did. You know, Taiwan can learn from that. Just look at what Singapore has done and try to emulate that as much as possible. Mm. And, you know, you're probably not going to have the similar threshold of success or quantums that Singapore has had right. on like venture funding or things like that. But, you know, you can create a startup ecosystem or environment here or make Taiwan a more attractive place for foreign investors to come and set up businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, the gold card program, the government wants to bring what I believe 100,000 new foreigners mm-hmm. by 2030. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to need things to do. Yeah, exactly. Unless, unless it's all retirees. <laughs> uh, and I know Taiwan is number one place mm-hmm. amongst retirees. And right. I can see why it's a it's a great NHI is, is fantastic. Mm. Uh, healthcare is, is fantastic. Here. Yeah. That single <laughs> payer system, Bernie Sanders would love it here. <laughs> exactly. um, you know, so I give Taiwan tons of credit on that. That is, mm. you know, Singapore's medical system is great, but you know, cost wise and just organizationally wise, it's, it's nothing like what Taiwan has, mm. you know? So, but if you're going to have a hundred thousand foreigners come here, that's be ready. Your, your target, that environment's got to be ready for them. hundred percent. It could so, backfire if not. Yeah. Uh, or you're going to have a bunch of freelancers working here or yeah. whatever. So, you know, it's these sorts of things. And and I know the gold card community, all of us that have come to Taiwan, we're here to help. We mm-hmm. want to help. We want to make Taiwan stronger, make startups here uh, stronger so that they can compete globally. You know, we're all here to help. Mm-hmm. And I know the gold card community is very driven towards this. Lots of people in the mm-hmm. gold card community are here to help Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, there's insights and expertise yeah. uh, that government entities and policymakers can leverage. Exactly. And they know that too. And they're doing it, you know, but the pace of change is always typically really slow anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, it took Singapore about a decade to really kind of get to a point where the startup ecosystem is just humming along like it is and super robust. Uh, I don't think Taiwan will ever turn into like what kind of a powerhouse Singapore is on the startup world stage, Mm. but 
you know, it can definitely be super competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it can outcompete Japan. Yeah. Uh, Korea is another great startup market as mm. well. You know, that's probably a good example of, uh, again, another place that is kind of got similar geopolitical things going on sure right. uh, on the korean peninsula yeah you know probably also makes investors a little bit skittish but mm. there's some great startup things happening in korea as well right and, and the then, government there is actually very proactive as well right and then all of uh, southeast asia as well with these huge markets in indonesia philippines yeah vietnam vietnam right? i mean you look at collectively what's the population of southeast asia i want to say it's like 800 i think 650 million, million uh yeah. in asean anyways i think yeah but 600 700 yeah. maybe 800 yeah could yeah. be yeah yeah it's crazy it, it's a large <laughs> market <laughs> yeah as a whole you know but it's not all homogenous like it's a very diverse diverse very indonesia diverse. vietnam thailand they all operate differently yeah, and so, Indonesia's huge and very massive. diverse within that G20 country. G20 country, you know, just lots of potential in Indonesia. Yep, 100%. Yeah. I, I was just in Bali a few weeks ago, and, mm. you know, I know Bali's not really representative of Indonesia, <laughs> right. but, you know, it, it was it was good to be back there. The people there are really friendly, and mm. uh, there's some great, in Jakarta, there's a lot of great entrepreneurial stuff happening. I think so. So, yeah, there's a lot of cool Dark things. horse down there, yeah. Yep. Exactly. So what is the next five years looking like for Mr. Ah. Curtis Berg? Oh, yeah. They always tell you five-year plans and stuff. And (laughs) I'm really bad at this. So I think in the next five years, I'm approaching 40. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah. uh, I'm approaching 40. Someone actually, one of my colleagues that I do some work with slacked me the other day. I forget what it was. I was like, gosh, I feel old saying that. And she goes, don't feel old, feel experienced. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking again, that, that was a saleswoman. Yeah, that was, that no, was no, beautiful. she's a, she's an intern in marketing actually. And, uh, oh, wow. Give her uh, a full-time she, job. Yeah. Yeah. She's not from Taiwan. I think I forget where she's from, but, uh, I was thinking, I was like, Hey, I should put that on a poster or something. I'm not old. I'm experienced. I don't feel old, feel experienced. Exactly. Um, you know, I think my forties is really going to be kind of spent in startup land. Mm. Uh, you know, helping companies grow and scale. I get a lot of gratification and satisfaction out of helping others, mm. uh, which is just, you know, naturally why Startup Prime was such a good fit for me. Mm. I love connecting people mm-hmm. and seeing people connect and do business and help them get ahead. So, you know, if I can help a startup in Taiwan uh, or do something in Taiwan where, you know, I can create jobs or something like that and mm. help a company scale, you know, that's that's kind of what the next five years is, I think. Specifically, I'm not 100% sure, but right, of course. it's Who probably going to be within that um, and okay. creating value and creating opportunities. That's what gets me excited at the end of the day and right. why I wake up in the, the morning or late morning because uh, mm. I'm usually a night owl. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's what really gets me really excited about things is mm. seeing something that you can build and and get out there into the world so yeah and i think it is really an exciting time right now right i mean there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk as we kind of alluded to right geopolitically or otherwise but there's also a lot of opportunity yeah and i think also you know if you look at fundraising and you've seen the memes go around last year was a great time to raise money pandemic was a great time to raise money nothing slowed down if you if you look at uh, deal street asia they track a lot of this stuff about fundraising and rounds in asia read tech in asia great publication by the way this has been talked about and then 
it was a little bit of a shock to capital markets. There's a little bit of a shock. You know, inflation is affecting everything globally. Mm. And startup fundraising kind of got caught up and everyone was like, oh my God, winter is coming. It's going to be really, really tough to raise money. And yes, it is tougher to raise now mm. than it was last year or the year before. Right. If you're a startup, terms are not as favorable. You cannot get the valuations that you want typically, mm. but it is not impossible to raise, you know, because there are VC firms, you know, and, and most founders actually probably don't realize this mm. enough. VC firms close a fund they need to deploy that capital. Mm -hmm. They're not going to sit on it because yeah. the invest, the LPs are going to get pissed. Yeah. It's like, so make my money work for me. <laughs> yeah. You saw, you saw like Singapore, like jungle ventures just, just announced their fund uh, was about a month or two ago and you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. There's funds out there, firms that are launching third funds, fourth funds, funds that are meant for follow on funding for what's in fund port codes in one fund one and two. Mm. There's fundraising opportunities. There's still a bunch of dry powder out there, mm. but it is not going to be the freewheeling. I, I know the Adam Newman news, the 350 million <laughs> with flow is, is that's very reminiscent of what you saw in 2020 though, for non Adam Newman, famous people, startups, <laughs> exactly. uh, you saw this with normal, normalish, uh, right. <laughs> you know, your, your average startup. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, where they were getting terms like that. And right. it was just like, hey, you want 2 million at a 20 million valuation? Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's not like that anymore. So I think what's happened is it's not winter is coming and things are going to like dry down and stuff. It's just that everyone's getting back to fundamentals. Right. Which needs to happen. Which anyways. needs to happen. And, and typically, you know, markets are cyclical. Right. Exactly. You know, if you watch CNBC, exactly. If you watch, watch Squawk Jim Box. Kramer and exactly. you watch those guys and, and, you know, the key takeaway from all of the talking heads on, on TV and business news is over the last 20 years is like, everything is cyclical. Things mm. that go down, will come back up. And you know, these little kind of ruts that we're in right now, mm. maybe we avoid a recession. Maybe we don't. Mm. Um, I don't think it's going to be like 2008 or 2009, mm. but there's still opportunities for startups mm -hmm. to raise. You're just not going to be able to BS your way through a pitch or, you know, just get money because money is so easily available. Everyone's just back to doing fundamentals, which is what it was like five or 10 years ago when right. you were raising. So exactly. It's a good know, thing to get back is. to fundamentals. Getting back to fundamentals is a good thing for practically anything. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Okay. So, um, yes, I know you are a busy man. Um, yeah. we've had a very, very nice conversation. I really appreciate you coming in here. Yeah. Um, and I look forward to being able to talk to you again, you know, on the mic or off the mic as well. And we can catch up on Both. what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So this it's is up. ghost month. So before we leave, um, I wanted to ask you, do you believe in ghosts? Yes. You do. Yep. No I stayed way. at a, a, hoot, a hotel that will go. <laughs> a hotel. A hotel that will go unnamed here. And I swear I was woken up by some force. I, I felt no like somebody way. pulling sheets off of me. And I felt like the sheets were moving. And it just was, yeah. Where was this? I'm not, I'm not going oh, to. I don't want to hurt the hotel, the ghost. The hotel <laughs> brand or the ghost. Um, but there is a, there's a few hotels in Taipei that have a reputation for being haunted. Really? And you won't dare go in there because you... Actually, no. This happened at <laughs> one hotel that doesn't hotel. have that reputation. And I've stayed at the one that does has 
you could just Google like most haunted hotels yeah, in Asia, right. 10 you'll most haunted it. hotels in Asia. You'll, you'll find it. <laughs> and I've stayed at that one. Never had an issue. Really? But I actually like someone told me this and I've started doing it now <laughs> is when you enter a room for the hotel, when you enter a room, you knock on the door and you say, hi, I'm just here. I hope you let me stay in peace or whatever. Wow, Someone, you have to properly, yeah, respectfully told, greet the ghost. Yes. I told my incident to a local friend and they were like, yeah, knock on the door and just like politely be like, Uhaisu, I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. You know, Dwebachi. Hey, right. Like, I, you know, my, my Chinese is, I'm still learning. I'm really bad at it, but... <laughs> I know some words and you phrases. know some ghost Chinese. I'm not going to speak it on the mic here, <laughs> right. but you know, go into the room and 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 just say like, "I'm just a guest. I hope I don't disturb you or whatever." Wow, pay your respects. Yeah, just just be polite. Yeah, be polite. Just like if you're going into someone's house. Exactly. So, yeah, I actually started doing that after that incident. I was it was it was pretty freaky. Like I felt like something wake me up and move the sheets. Wow. So, yeah, and I've seen those cameras, those videos of on like, you know, the American TV shows of yeah, like something the bed just, sheets moving. Yep. There's things that can't be explained in this world. Yeah. Okay. So, so I wish you a very safe, prosperous, ghost-free Ghost yeah. month. If it if it if there are ghosts, it's hopefully it's like the friendly, the friendly Casper ones. kind of exactly. ghost. Exactly that rain down money. Yeah, exactly. That'd be good. <laughs> money yeah. and uh, and inside information on on the next big unicorn. Yes, that'll be nice. Ghosts from the ghosts, future. If you're listening, that's what Curtis Berg is looking Give for. Something from the oh, future. How he's, uh, yeah. he's very polite. Very friendly. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Curtis. Um, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Awesome. Thank you, Gain. All right. Peace, everyone. Good stuff. Yeah, that was awesome.